Hey everyone, Steve here, and I just want to give a quick shout out to M Rauga74, Katie Coat, and Taylor Edge at Edge Gainer for giving us reviews on iTunes. iTunes does their rankings based on an algorithm of downloads and reviews, so each review we get helps bump us up those podcast charts. If you like what you've heard and you've got a moment, please go to iTunes and leave us an honest review. We would appreciate it more than you know. We've got a link embedded in the summary of this MP3 to make it even easier to do so. And if you do, you'll probably get a shout out on a future episode. Thanks. I have a, a schedule where on Wednesday mornings, uh, I live in a little community called Jacksonville, Oregon. And above our city is about 20 miles of absolutely stunning hiking trails. Mm-hmm. I get my morning done. I head up in the mountain. I says, I'm yours, Lord. And I walk up there. I don't take a Bible with me. I don't take notepad with me. I am just present without being productive. And I found that, and I've been doing this for years, that there are not many margin spaces in the life of a leader where you're not required to be productive. And here's what I find with leaders, is that it's bone on bone, there's no cartilage. And if you're in a scenario, in a circumstance where you're serving and you don't have margin time, for me it's hiking, it could be a guy getting on a motorcycle, I know that Swindoll like or used to, you like to get on a motorcycle and get some bugs in your teeth. And so you got to have a place where you're not productive so that you can end up releasing what God gives you in the future. That's what margin Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, author and retired pastor, Garris Elkins. Garris has written a handful of books like Prayers from the Throne of God, God Whispers, Thoughts to Leave Behind, which talks about the intentional transition he completed in handing the reins of the church he led off to a younger associate that he was mentoring. It's a great read. But the one we're going to talk about in this interview was The Leadership Rock, a journey of a life in leadership. He's got some great stories in here that all have a life lesson in them, like the one you heard in the teaser clip about margin, which is really a passion of mine dating back to my days working at Focus on the Family with Dr. Dobson at Family Talk. I saw how I needed to build margin into my schedule and keep it. I love Garris, and I'm confident you will too. So here's how my co-host John Ramstead and I got this conversation with Garris Elkins started on this edition of Eternal Leadership. So John, I don't remember when exactly it was, but through the wonderful World Wide Web and social media, I found out about this pastor in Southern Oregon named Garris Elkins and his stuff that he would post on his Facebook page and he that would get shared through social media I just fell in love with and the more that I started following him the more that I started researching him the more that I started reading his stuff I just it it resonated within my spirit this is a guy who who has a lot of wisdom and so for that reason John I, I brought him to you and said, we need to get this guy on. Yeah, and Garris, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Um, you know, it, just getting to know you, uh, you know, the little bit that I do, mostly from reading, and I'm really excited about this conversation, um, I'd love for you to just share about your journey and let people get to know you. But what really, um, I guess, drew me to your heart is just, you know, this uh, this calling that you feel that you have or that you do have, you know, to just raise up this generation, Right to you know right. just to speak into this world you know with the empowerment of heaven you know and yeah. everything you talk about is how we 
as individuals. And we started out this conversation, and you started right out quoting with Jeremiah, right? That God has a right. hope and a future for us. And how do we embrace that? How do we, you know, just uh, grab that for all it's worth and run with it? And so, um, let me just turn it over to you and just let you share a little bit about your journey. And then you wrote this wonderful book, Leadership Rock, that Steve and I are really uh, looking forward to diving into here a little bit with you. Well, you bet. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I, I've been doing this a lot of years, and uh, I think the thing that has helped me most in my journey with the Lord is to not forget what my beginnings were like. And uh, I keep going back to those first uh, several years of, of actual ministry time while I was in full-time ministry, and the struggles that I went through there became the seedbed for the victories that I would have later on in ministry and life. And uh, many times we find those places of our personal failure and failures in ministry and where we miss the mark as a place to avoid, but God asked my wife and I to embrace those and walk back into them and discover the goodness in them and uh, allow the Lord to reconstruct our lives in those particular places where we lost hope. He would bring hope and then share that with with leaders in a safe environment um, where somebody could be entrusted with a broken season to help you dissect it and find the hope in it, because I I discovered that God never leads us forward by judgment. He always calls us forward through hope. And if I could find that place of hope in the most uh, challenging moments of my life and ministry, and then walk forward from that place with hope, that I would find myself in the middle of God's uh, beautiful will for my life. And so that's what's been a passion, <clears throat> excuse me, for myself and for my wife, is that when Jan and I will uh, relate with leaders, uh, it's primarily to go to those places that sometimes we're just afraid to talk about. And uh, we have found, uh, whether here or in Europe or across America, wherever God has us talking to to leaders, the Lord basically gave us an instruction, just start relating and, and, and becoming a friend, and somewhere in the conversation that you'll have, there'll be that word or that sentence that I wanted you and them to hear and then I want you then to unpack it and hope with them. So that's really what I've been doing for the last 35 years, and, and Lord willing, I'd like to do it for another 35. And, and that's where, uh, where I draw my joy, is to see people where the light goes on, they're in the middle of a trauma, or ministry seems to be flatlining, or it's a slow decline, and they're, they're wondering, you know, do I have uh, spiritual bad breath? Why are people not approaching <laughs> our ministry, and we go back into that place where they're feeling that way and unpack the feelings and show them where there's uh, really two voices speaking to you and you need to hear the voice of the Lord. So that's in essence, in essence what I do, and, and I, I love it. It's, it has a prophetic sense to it. Um, my background, you know, I was raised in a very wonderful conservative Baptist church, and I now hold credentials with the Fourscore Church, so I'm on two unique perspectives historically. Um, I can still remember growing up in a Baptist church sitting in old pews, and my pastor became the model of what I wanted to be someday, and then later on God did some things in our life that caused us to uh, uh, fellowship in a different family that we were totally unfamiliar with, and that's been a huge blessing. And um, You mentioned the leadership rocket. The forward was written by Jerry Cook, who was, uh, before he passed away for many years, one of our Foursquare pastors, and wrote uh, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness. And so I listened to that man and others like him, like Jack Hayford. I listened to these men for my growing up years in ministry, and I found that they would always lead people forward with a word of hope. They, they'd be very strong.
straight up with you about the reality of what you're believing, but then they would leave you with hope. And so that's what I think most leaders need because we have a tendency, and I do, and I'm assuming other leaders might do this too, is to create these little citadels of our own struggle where we don't think anybody else understands what we're going through. And, and the last time we may have shared our heart with somebody, we got betrayed, and so we climb up and try to make the rest of our ministry solo, and that's never good. So we've got to have somebody in our life, whether it's an upward mentor, mentor a lateral or a downward mentor, whatever place it is, somebody's got to be speaking to us, and uh, that's what um, God has asked me to do, just to be a, a person to help somebody unpack their prophetic voice to the culture, to the particular ministry and assignment they have, and to not rob them of that and make them sound like me, but to enhance their voice. That's, that's what God has asked me to do. Well, Garris, I think one of the things that really impressed me the most about you is that you've made your transition as you've stepped down from the lead pastor at your church. You've made you've been very intentional about raising up a young pastor to take take over after you and and set a, a very strong schedule. In which case, you know, it's it's a ten year process, if I remember correct, is what you told me. Right. Right. Yeah, when we came to Southern Oregon, we were in, uh, based out of Berlin, Germany uh, for four years prior to coming here in 1999, and we were um, pretty much just uh, traveling and encouraging churches, paid for by our denomination, just with the assignment, go over there and find out what God's doing, and here's the, here's the budget for that, and we spent uh, almost four years living out of suitcases and traveling just about every country in Europe, and and after that, we really needed uh, community, and so God sovereignly picked us up and put us in Medford, Oregon. And one of the first things the Lord said to me is He said, start giving this away. And my conversation with the Lord was, well, I just got here. <laughs> you know. And He said, no, start planning to give it away. So from the very beginning, at that time I was 49, I'm 65 now, when I was uh, 49, I had to think of ministry as, if I gave this away tomorrow, what would this look like? And so there was very uh, intentional decisions that we made to surround ourselves with a, with a lot of young leaders. Um, uh, became a father in the faith to many, uh, as Steve had mentioned on, on, on the Internet in a strange way, but very close up here locally. And about uh, six years ago, I had a conversation with a young man that God had pointed out that was one of the people on our staff that I felt this is the guy that God wants to give the church to. And so... I let it sit for a couple of years with me and the Lord just talking about it, and I approached him and his wife, and uh, they were shocked a little bit, but excited another way, but uh, weren't sure that's what they wanted to do. I had people wanting to hire him away. He's a very gifted young man. God said, take your hands off of that. Don't interfere with that at all. Uh, they went away on a, a short season of prayer, came back, and God had an encounter with him and said, give your life to this ministry. And I said, okay, now that the green light's there, I want you to just sit down and go do your job on what he was doing at the time with our youth. Just be faithful. I'll come back and get you. So he did that, and then about uh, two years ago, I came to him and said, look, uh, it's time to pull the trigger on this. Uh, I want to make you our executive pastor, but I don't want to call you that because it sounds too businessy. Um, I, I call myself senior leader. He calls himself uh lead pastor, which confuses some people, but in part of me kind of enjoys that, <laughs> uh, the, label, the label confusion. So uh, I said, here's your assignment. I want you to go through the entire system of this church, and I want you to reinvent it to look like you. I, I give you my permission to do what you need to do to make sure this is not going to be Saul's armor on you. 
And so he took uh, two years and working through all of our systems, began to uh, have it lean towards his gifts and strengths. I said, I don't need to be in every meeting. I need to be in the ones I'm required to be in, but the rest of them, you just handle the meetings and ask me if you need any input. And as a result of that, when the time for the transition came, he was stepping into not a new set of armor, but something that was very comfortable to him. And uh, as a result of that, it worked. I, I, early on, we had a conversation. I said, you know, Ryan, this is going to work if two things exist. One, if there's honor in the house, if you continue to be a man of honor. And secondly, if I don't become the grumpy old pastor who wants to get a following to change things back to the good old days. So <laughs> we had that understanding. And, and then he said, I'll do this if you stay. I said, well, I didn't plan on going anywhere. He said, good, I'll do this then. And so it's been this... Uh, uh, different way of approaching pastoral transitions because many times they're draconian and brutal and they don't really give the world a picture of a club that, that they would want to join. So uh, guys my age, which I help oversee a, a geographic region for our denomination, and I've got a lot of guys my age that uh, don't know how to start that conversation. So we started it 10 years ago, and we're uh, about six months into the four years after the transition that will uh, finish the tenure process that you brought up. So, you know, in this, was it during this process that you decided to write this book, Leadership Rock? Uh, you know, it was in the middle of that. Uh, just dial back a little bit of time in history. <clears throat> I'm, I'm someone who never saw myself as a writer. My wife has written a number of books for Multnomah Press, and my daughter's a, 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 a world-class editor, works for publishing companies here and abroad. Um, is extremely gifted, Fulbright scholar kind of person. And so I'm the guy, though, that never wanted to do that. I watched these people strain out words and phrases and feeling. I thought, who would want to do that? Well, when we were in Europe in 1997, I was uh, on, a, on a platform of a conference and came off the platform, and a dear old lady reached out and grabbed me by the arm, and I didn't know who she was. Uh, but she was a, a what they call a prophetess, uh, very balanced, by the way, to um, the Elam movement in Europe. And she now, by the way, is on Jack Hayford's staff in Van Nuys. She's about 90 now, but then she was probably in her 70s. She, she grabbed me by the arm. She says, you're going to write for God. I mean, I'm walking down the aisle. She reached out and grabbed me and said, you're going to write for God. And I thought, well, that's the last thing I want here. So that laid somewhat dormant in my life for about 10 years until 2007, and I was having what we all need from season to season, as I was having another uh, work of the Spirit, another fresh Pentecost in my own leadership, and where God then said, this is the time I'm going to resurrect this word that was given to you, which is the desire of my heart for your life. So all that to say, that was 577 blog articles ago and five books ago, and and it has not uh, diminished. I'm, I'm amazed that God gave me that heart, but in this time... Uh, between 2007 and now, about 2011 and 12, this book came about because I felt the Lord wanted me to just collect the good, bad, and the ugly of leadership and put it in a book. I, I wasn't into being a theorist. I didn't want to teach another leadership theory. I studied that. I love it, but that wasn't the purpose of the book. It was to just share stories. In fact, probably my favorite story in the book is the first chapter about Gladys, the drunk lady who came to my church. And so... I want people to realize that leadership is not always the mountaintop. The, the real word of the Lord comes in the valley, in the mountain. We go reflect on it, but, man, the valley's where we learn it, and that's where I learned it, and that's why I wrote the book. 
Well, Garris, I, I think that's one of the one of my favorite stories in that book. I saw you repost that on Facebook probably, I don't know, a number of months ago. And, and right, right. When, when, when I got to that in the book, I'm like, oh, I remember that story. So tell about that story because I, I, <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I love the lesson that you learned from Gladys, yeah. the well, drunk that lived across the street. And, and, and before you start, Garris, I'd love to share yeah. with people because I've watched your YouTube channel. People are in for a treat. We're going to put this in the blog post. They need – you are one of the best – and most masterful storytellers that I've ever heard because every one of them is teaching and, and there's something practical in there and something that I can apply. So, you know, maybe what we could do, this might be kind of a, a fun thing, is because there's 46 chapters in this book. It's 150 pages of just amazingness. And what I love about it is you can just sit down and in five minutes just get a, a life lesson right. wherever you are. I mean, you can just flip it open, stick your finger and say, oh, wow. Man, I needed to hear that today because you call it you yeah. know, this journey, a life journey of leadership. So maybe what we could do is actually pull out some of the, the three themes or three most guiding principles that you think are in this book. And just maybe let's go in and just share three stories that highlight those. Well, okay. Um, gosh, that first, you know, in fact, the first chapter is about Gladys. It's called The Gift of Gladys. And I gotta tell you, my first Sunday as a church planter, because that's what my wife and I did. We left uh, Eugene, Oregon, where our home church had sent us out, packed our kids and two dogs, uh, two cats in a uh, Subaru, and uh, Jan and the Subaru followed me in the U-Haul truck, and we drove for two days to Montana. And uh, I honestly, it's embarrassing to today to think back 35 years ago when we did this, but there was really no church planting materials. We just went with a word from God. And, you know, later on I would become a church planting coach and, and those kinds of things and re- reflect back on these stories and get a red face. But God used them to help me understand leaders in the future. So coming back to the first Sunday, I had uh, rented a room in the Outlaw Inn in Kalispell, Montana, in the Colt 45 room. And you can kind of get the Western theme of this place. It was a casino and bar and a hotel. And we rented a room, uh, they had a little thing up there that had the church name on it, you could barely read it, it was so small, and I had one of those 1970s uh, petroleum-based suits that uh, just looked just ugly and it was ugly as can be, and I had 50 bulletins made up with amazing graces to ham on it, and we were going to need a lot of grace before the day was over. My first church service, I had one lady, I mean, honestly, started the church service and there was nobody in the building. I had stood at the front door till 10 o'clock, our start time, and I'd gone catatonic. I, I really went into depression, realizing nobody was going to show up for our church, first church service. And I thought I was a flop and a failure. I was figuring how I could get the U-Haul truck back and go back home. I was living in shame and doubt. And, I mean, it came on me like huge in a moment. felt a tug on my sleeve as I was standing there in my pastoral pose with the uh, bulletins in my hand. It was my wife. She said, it was time to start church. I said, what? Are you nuts? There's nobody here. And then she said this. She said, well, the kids and I are here. And I said, but you don't count. You know, we need people coming. So she tugged me by the arm, brought me in, and I stood up in front of an empty room, except with my two little kids dangling their feet in these chairs and my wife looking at me like I was Billy Graham. And I began to lead a cappella worship for a few minutes. And then the back door cracked open, and the lady stuck her head in. And uh, she said, she yelled from the back of the the room, is this the four-score church? And I wanted to yell more than anything, no, it's not, please go away. <laughs> and she walked in, she was a, a visiting artist, uh, 
it was time to take the offering. I'm giving you this background so that you know when Gladys shows up what she came to. And uh, before we left the house that morning, I had one of the, we had one of those little baskets, uh, woven baskets out of straw that had fruit in it, and I dumped the fruit out and took it as our offering bucket. And the Lord says, take the offering now. And I said, well, I'm not going to pass this basket that used to have fruit in it to this lady and get all embarrassed here. And he says, do it. So I did. She dropped a hundred bucks in it. My first real spiritual thought was, well, at least we're going to eat. Then the next week goes by and I'm, I'm thinking this is very strange. I was almost in a catatonic state like, um, Oh God, where, where did you go? The next Sunday I came, uh, this is the Sunday that Gladys showed up. I went to the front counter and they said, well, we've moved you to another room. And for the next six weeks, they would move us every Sunday to a room that, uh, and they knew that this little one or two person group could handle. And so the second Sunday, this little lady, she must have been close to 70 at the time. Her name was Gladys. I know she's gone now, so I can safely talk about her. Um, she walked in and I, I knew Gladys was a function, functioning alcoholic. She was about a half a bottle of gin into it by 10 o'clock in the morning, but she was functional. And she'd sit in the front row and she, she had a face that just looked like everybody's mom. And she sat next to my wife, and she hung on every word I spoke. Several weeks went by, about four weeks into it, I'd had enough. I says, God, if you're bringing me a drunk lady every Sunday morning, and this is the ministry, I have a total misconception about this. I'm, I'm, I'm packing up, and we're going home. And the Lord just spoke as clear as I've ever heard him speak. He says, Garris, if you learn to love this one, I will send you more. And when he said that, something pierced my heart. I mean, it pierced me deeply. And uh, I went back and uh, I said, Jan, we, we need to move the church out of this building and take it into our home and start a home group and then a church. We did that. The very next Sunday, we had six people show up, and from then on, the church began to grow. And by the time we left, uh, five years later, there were a couple of hundred people in this little small town that called that place its church home, and, and God just did a miracle in the mountains, I call it. So that, that was Gladys. So what was the what was the principle that became clear to you through through that experience? That not everything in ministry is supposed to look successful to be successful. Uh, we have many times been programmed to interpret growth and life as something that's extremely important. And I, I think life is important. Don't get me wrong, but we have a tendency if we don't see momentum, we want to go create momentum. And sometimes that momentum is generated by human effort, not by the Spirit. And that has a short shelf life. And what God wanted me to learn that day is that everything I needed for life and ministry was present as I looked out upon one attendee to a, a church plant. I'm not obviously including my wife and two children. And I needed to be content with me and God and nothing. And I was not content with me and God and nothing. I was, uh, I was not content with being faithful to one at that point because I had come from a very large church and thought immediately that there was going to be hundreds of people because I came from that church and God in his great love did not allow that to happen. And so what I learned was the heart of God before I began to minister the word of God. And when the word of God is not ministered with the heart of God, it's just, it's, it has a, a deadness to it. And so I look back on Gladys and those moments when those weeks that I went through literally hell on, on ministry earth, that God had 
had healed something in me and, and took me out of a pit of self-delusion and says, Garris, here's really why I want you in the ministry. I want you to love this one. And by the way, if you learn to love this one, there's some more I want to bring you. And he's done that in the last 35 years. What a great story. You know, it makes me just think, you know, everything in Scripture, if we really look at it, reinforces everything going on in our life. And, you know, like Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord, right? For those that are called yeah, according yeah. to his purpose. But sometimes we're in those those storms, those tempests, and it's sometimes hard to kind of see, you know, what, what's the purpose here? How, how is this actually, you know, going to work out? Right. Um, Absolutely. So what's the what's the uh, where would you like to go next, Garris? What, what do you think some of the well, other key points here on the book? And anybody listening, well, you know, get the book and read the whole yeah. thing because it's fabulous. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, you know, just as I've got the book in my hand now because you're referring to it, and I, I I'm jumping all the way over to chapter forty five, which is the next to the last chapter. It's it's more of con- concepts of ministry, and then I'll jump back in and finish up with the personal thing that was earlier in the book. But okay. Um, one of the things that I learned, uh, gosh, I've been a pastor probably six or seven years, and what was popular back then in the 80s was something called breaking the 200 barrier. In fact, they had many conferences of, you know, get your church past the 200 barrier, and that, that way you can be a successful pastor. And, and I'm sure those that had that ministry for the church meant it well, but what it actually did is created a collective spirit of depression and leadership where if you didn't pass the 200 barrier, that there somehow was a was, was something wrong with your leadership style um, or you needed to find another way of uh, moving forward in life and ministry. And, and nobody talked about it. It was like the elephant in the room. The more people said break the 200 barrier, the more depressed pastors got. And I was about the time as a young pastor trying to break that 200 barrier myself. Because, you know, it's interesting that there's so many things, you know, in business. Can you get past 10 employees? Can you get past a million dollars in revenue? I mean, there's so many parallels in business and ministry. I think it's all woven together. But there's so many people that are constantly comparing themselves to this external standard. And when we don't live up on it, you know, what's the first thing we talked about was hope. We kind of give up hope because now all of a sudden we say, you know what? You know, relative to how I'm measuring myself, I'm I'm failing. So maybe I'm not good enough or all these things flood into our head. They do, and I tell you what, part of the job of leadership is uh, taking those myths and those lies and uncovering them and in a place of honor for leaders to walk out of them. And so the lesson that I learned out of that was that this, uh, in, the, in the 80s, this story that I'm referencing, I was at a large uh, conference for our denomination, about 3,500 people going to be showing up in Portland, Oregon, for this conference at the uh, convention center. And um, my pastor, Roy Hicks, Jr., wonderful guy, he's with the Lord right now. Um, Roy was the supervisor of this entire area, so he was uh, the chairman of the conference. And so, three days before the conference, one of his keynote speakers had to bail on him. I'm not sure what the reason was, but it was legit. And so Roy calls up his cousin, Roger Whitlow, who at the time pastored a huge church, almost 3,000 people, big facilities, school. Uh, Roger's ministry was and still is highly respected, though he's not pastoring the church now. It's called Valley Christian Center in Fresno. And and he said, can you bail me out? I need a speaker, and would you do it? And, of course, you know, Roger was ready to go for his, his cousin, and I, I love Roger and his teaching. So up on the platform comes Roger, and he steps out, And the first words out of his mouth, he said this, 
a lot of you look at my ministry and you look at what God has done with the multiple thousands of people that come each weekend, the large campus that we have that includes the school, the favor that we've got in our community and the, the momentum of our ministry, and you think it's because I'm the pastor of this church. Can I tell you what leadership truth? This is what happened. God decided to do all of this, and I happened to be the pastor in the saddle when he made that decision. He says, this is not because of Roger Whitlow. This is because God chose to do this tremendous work in this time, and I happen to be fortunate enough to be the pastor of the church. And in that gathering of 3,500 pastors and leaders, you could hear a collective sigh of relief that said, ah, am, I'm okay. And I don't remember anything else that Roger spoke in that entire uh, session, but I remember that to such a degree that I, I felt I needed to write that and make it a chapter in the book. And later on, uh, when I was writing the book, I communicated with Roger and said, look, I want to write this story about you. Is it okay? And he said, sure. So, what, Garris, what was going on yeah. in your life at that point in time where that statement had such an impact? I was trying to... Uh, break the barriers that had been imposed upon me from well-meaning leaders that made me think in some way that if I didn't get past this particular number or this income level, that somehow I would not die a happy leader, that I would somehow be one of those tolerated failures in leadership that did not create a large, huge church that uh, was just an illusion. And I, and I, I was feeling at that time like a lot of my friends. I had one guy, now he pastors a church of, I think in Easter they had 8,000 people. At the time, he only had less than 400. And he was trying to get through the 400 barrier, and he was depressed about it. And had he bailed on that and not heard the heart of God, an entire region of America would not be touched by his ministry today. So it was trying to get through imposed barriers that said, if you get past this one, you'll be successful. But the problem with the barriers is that once you get through that one illusion and why, there's going to be another one given to you and another one and another one. You spend your life chasing things that God never called you to chase. So when you had that realization, because uh, it sounded like this was kind of a profound moment for you, what did that give you moving forward? You know, it, it gave me more of a love for God than it did for the love for ministry. And it made me appreciate God. It made me feel affirmed as a son. Because really this whole thing that we're doing called ministry, the whole reason why you're podcasting this today mm -hmm. is ultimately we want, we want to reveal the heart of God. Now, you know, the techniques and the, and the way that we do ministry are wonderful. We've all got those. But there's no life in those at all. The life comes from understanding that I'm a son of the living God who exchanged my sinful nature for the nature of Christ. And when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but like the old song says, he sees Jesus. And so for me, a profound part of that was the love of God that I felt and the acceptance of God that I felt in that moment. Garris, you mentioned Roy Hicks Jr., your pastor, and, and, yeah. and, and he gave you a profound piece of advice as you got ready, if I remember correctly, as you got ready to go off to Montana that you referenced in Chapter 7, Lovers and Historians. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah, is a piece of profound advice. <clears throat> this is with a large church, about 4,000 people in Eugene, Oregon, called Faith Center. And Roy had sent out over a hundred church planters and missionaries around the world. He was a very apostolic leader. 
And uh, I remember having an appointment in Roy's office with my wife um, before we went out. And Roy said, I want to tell you something. Here's what you're supposed to do. He says, go into your city and be a lover and a historian. Study the history of the people and love them before you start making radical changes. Study the history. Understand why they think the way they think. Understand their life through their history. And then in that moment, begin to love them. And he said, if you're a lover and a historian, you'll always be a successful leader in the eyes of God because you, you discover things about people that you won't find if they're just a commodity for your leadership or for your ministry. And so wherever we've gone, in every church and every ministry assignment, our first job was to study the history of the people. It's a missiology, if you will, but to study the history of the people and then just to love them. And as a result of that, churches get birthed, leadership uh, leaders get transformed, and pastors and spouses survive ministry. Well, Garris, I-, I love what you wrote here at the end of it. In each new season, you enter life, take a moment, and commit yourself to be a lover and historian of those you are called to lead. The acts of love you release and the knowledge of history you gain will create a buffer between you and the strident seasons that ministry will inevitably bring along your way. Loving people amidst their broken history is a powerful testimony of God's love. I, I, that, that, that to me speaks, speaks volumes, that you went yeah. and you learned about their history, you learned about these people, but then you also coach people to do the same. In fact, that's what I've done in, in every church planter that I've sent out in the last 35 years and, and every assignment that I've had, uh, and some of them being regional assignments, it's always been go into this new assignment, if I'm sending somebody into it, go into this new assignment, study the history, love the people, and then I've turned that back on myself and every new assignment that I've had. My first job was to do exactly that principle that Roy had given me all those years ago, because it becomes, like it says, a buffer. All of a sudden, I don't have to change them. I need to understand them. And then God is the one who brings the change. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to the things of God. And, and for me, it keeps me from being a, uh, an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of people. Uh, if, I don't, if I don't understand them, then I'll want them to perform to my standard instead of God's standard. And that does become a buffer, a safety buffer, where God is at work doing something infinitely more than I would ever dare to ask a hope and think, kind of the Ephesians 3.20 thing, while I'm looking at their history that says these people aren't going to make it, and then the love of God comes and says, wait a minute, I'm going to write a new history for them, but I needed you to understand where they came from so that you weren't offended in this journey that I'm going to take them on. It, it touches every area of our life. It touches employment, when it, even in the secular world, if you're going to go into a job and you're getting hired as CEOs and interviewing somebody, the first thing a new employee needs to do is be a historian of the company and love the product or you're not going to sell a thing. It just is a, it's a life principle for every aspect of life. You know, Garris, I was thinking as, as you're talking, I'd love for you to expand on that point. You know, you know, working with, judging somebody based on, you know, your standard or God's standard. Uh, you know, a lot of times, right. especially in the workplace, uh, we see those standards as, as a bit separate and distinct. Um, right. Could you could you just expand on that a little bit, what you meant there? Well, I, I think, uh, if I'm hearing what you're asking, um, I, I think everything is ministry. I, I think what we've done is we've compartmentalized ministry to such a, 
such a way that we need professionals to do ministry now. And and in most every church of any size, you've got successful businessmen and women who run companies that need to be set, excuse me, set free to approach their business as an apostolic form of ministry. And what I mean by that is that you begin to do business as ministry. You begin to do your business as a way of changing that segment of society to reflect kingdom principles instead of just good business principles, which are frankly a dime a dozen. Uh, but there's, there's very few who have been released to have an apostolic understanding of what they're doing in the business world. Um, and so that's what I think the next phase of the church's growth and development in the Western culture, at least where I'm part of, is that we can begin to expand our understanding of all of this to be a, a kingdom mindset that's not relegated to just some guy that's you know studies in his church study for eight hours a day to prepare a message on a, on a Sunday and doesn't really interact much of his culture. Um, God is God is shifting so much in the dynamic of leadership in the church today that we really don't know where we've been delivered. We've been, we've been positioned into a new place, and now we're starting to unpack it, which means we've got to raise our eyes off this horizon of historic Christianity, not from the truths of it, but how it worked, and come in, in a new world now and embrace unchanging biblical truths, but in a cultural context that is radically different, which requires that people like the two of you and myself and other leaders that we would allow people to move forward in dimensions and definitions of ministry that they've never seen before, and we may never have seen before either. And it's it's uh, a little nerve-wracking, but it's also really exciting. Well, you know, Garris, as you're talking, I you know, I always think of ministry, as, it's, it's about giving your life away. And, you know, it's what Jesus yeah. modeled while he was here. You know, and as I was, uh, you know, in my journey, uh, growing in my faith, um, you know, and I was, you know, leading and running a company, uh, I yeah. I used to get stuck in that verse in John 15 about, you know, greater love has no more than this except to lay down one's life, you know, yeah. for a friend. And I'm like, yeah. okay, well, I could see taking a bullet for my wife and my kids, but how does that apply? And I was really convicted, actually, fairly recently, it's about how do we lay down our life in service to other people? How do right. we put the needs of others ahead of our needs and serve them? It's what you did when you transitioned to leadership of your church over that is such a great modeling of that verse in john 15 uh you know, what are your thoughts about that well i i think you hit the nail on one of the big proverbial heads out there is that we really need to do that and i think let's just use the business world for example what would happen if uh, a, a business leader that had an apostolic function mm-hmm. and gathered around him a board and a team that also functioned that way what would happen if they were developing a product but saw a competitor who was trying to develop the same kind of product and went to that competitor and said, look, we know you guys have been struggling for a while. We want to give you our breakthrough. We're going to be just fine because we've got something else on the burner, but we want to give you your breakthrough. After the mouth dropped and the board of the business that would receive that blessing heard that, they would see an example of what the kingdom of God is about. It's about taking a bullet for somebody that's not really even connected to you. It's a competitor that you go to and you love those that would be construed as an enemy. I'm, those are miracles. When those things happen, it's like, 
a blind eye being healed because it's so unusual. And I'm, I'm, I've got friends of mine that have taken their buildings funds, I mean the funds, plural, and given them to other local churches and said, you know, we can make it for a few more years, but you guys and your growth right now, you're without a place. Here's our hundreds of thousands of dollars. Take this money and it's yours. I, I've got some friends that have done that. And I said, I don't know if I could do that. I want to be big enough to do that. And I'm thinking that the breakthrough in this next season is not to have uh, uh, another uh, closed-door meeting where we, we pray the Holy Spirit down, and I'd love to see that too, but I think it's going to have to break out of these really narrow definitions and do what you said out of John 15, where we lay down our life for another ministry or another person who's in competition to our market share. Well, you know, I have a thought as you're talking, and, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of listeners now. If you're listening to this, and, and you know, I know some stories, and, you know, of people that have done that, companies that have done that. If you've been part of that or you've heard stories like that, I'd love for you to get in contact with us. Just mm-hmm. send that in. I'd love to put that all together yeah. and publish that in a blog post and just share that out there. It's just some great examples and modeling of really what success can look like with this kingdom mindset. Yeah, that's good stuff. Garris, as we wrap up, probably the chapter that impacted me the most was chapter number eight, because you talk specifically about margin, about creating margin in your schedule to be able to hear from God, to be able to recharge your batteries, to be able in, in some way to get filled back up. And and I know this personally because uh, for people that heard my story, I completely burned out after working 15 years within parachurch ministry. And so that one to me spoke a lot. So t- talk about how your weekly hike okay. happened and, and okay. what it's, what, how that's really helped recharge you and giving you ideas. Well, I, I agree with you. This, this is the th- the title of the chapter is margin time. And I, and I think uh, this is one of the first, questions that I will typically ask a leader um, is, where's your margin time? Your margin time for me is this. It's a time where I do not have to be productive. I do not have to be responsive. Uh, for me, it works out this way. I have a, a schedule where on Wednesday mornings, uh, I live in a little community called Jacksonville, Oregon, and above our city is about 20 miles of absolutely stunning hiking trails. Mm-hmm. I get my morning done. I head up onto the mountain. And I, I, I can, in fact, I did it just yesterday. I walked up in the mountain, I says, I'm yours, Lord. And I walk up there, I don't take a Bible with me. I don't take notepad with me. I am just present without being productive. And I found that, and I've been doing this for years, that there are not many margin spaces in the life of a leader where you're not required to be productive. And somebody said, well, why don't you take a Bible with you? Because I'll end up studying it. Uh, why don't you take a Bible and be devotional? I don't want to be devotional. I just have my devotions. This is not about that. This is to get away from devotion. It's to get away from study. It's to get away from the phone. It's to find that place in your week that becomes a spiritual cartilage between you and having to be productive. And I'll tell you, it's a huge battle to get into that mindset because I always want to be producing for God. <laughs> this is a place where he says, Come away with me. It's a Mark 631 thing. Come away with me. And I've been doing that for years now. And I have expanded that beyond just that particular few hours in my week. I have built into my entire schedule margin time. In other words, 
if I'm traveling, if I'm going to be speaking somewhere and I've got a couple of things to speak at, I will purposely build in hours of margin time where my host that's going to receive me may not even know that I'm in town yet because I need to be accelerate so that I can hear the voice of God. And so that's what it is. It's uh, something that I do each week, but it's something that's infiltrated most of my life. And here's what I find with leaders is that it's bone on bone. There's no cartilage. And if you're in a scenario and a circumstance where you're serving and you don't have margin time, for me, it's hiking. It could be a guy getting on a motorcycle. I know that Swindoll likes to, or used to, he likes to get on a motorcycle and get some bug in, bugs in his teeth. And so you got to have a place where you're not productive so that you can end up releasing what God gives you in the future. That's what margin time. How has that revolutionized your life? It's given me moments of expectation. There's not a week that goes by that I, in a busy, busy week, that I don't look forward to Wednesday mornings that I know I get to go and not have to even think about that stuff. I get to walk and stop and look at a tree and talk to God and, or watch a, a drop of water fall off a leaf and take the prism of, of the sun's light and reflect it. I, I had a fox the other day stop on a stump about 30 steps from me. And he, he, he just sat there and looked at each other for 10 minutes. He just looked at it. And I thought, thank you, God. And it's, it's changed me so that I can stop and smell the proverbial roses that exist along this pathway of leadership that if you're so driven to produce or to answer to a group of people who hired you, you will never uh, smell the rose or see that drop of water. And that's the primary mission that I think most of us are on is to get leaders to look at their schedule and say, you know, this really looks good in the business world by somebody driven and run, running in, into the drug world of, 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 of leadership. But we want to rescue you from that and set you free so that you can be the most productive leader and finish well, like Clinton says, at the end of your days, living in intimacy with God and making that ultimate contribution to the kingdom that you were created for. I think this is one of the most important points of this entire interview, because I know that there are people listening right now that you've, you, you're here at this point right now, you're exhausted, you're worn out, you're tired, you're stressed, you have stuff going on in your life, whether it be through work, family, whatever, and you need to schedule that time into your schedule and get that time away whatever it is that recharges your battery whether it be a bike ride whether it be a hike whether it just be a car ride a motorcycle ride like chuck swindoll whatever make sure that you start to do it on a weekly basis whatever it is recharges your battery put it on there well, the best part about that conversation is I've been trying to lobby my wife on why I should own a Harley Davidson for years, and now I just think I figured out a whole new angle. Well, be hey. careful, buddy. Justin Paul <laughs> why not me? There you go. Aguirre, thank you so much for your time. This was just uh, a blessing, and I really appreciate who you are and for taking the time to come on today and share. Thank you very much. My honor. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Garris, his books, or his YouTube page, where he's recently been sharing some short two-minute and less videos, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 080. That's eternalleadership.com slash 080. 
I love all of Garris's books. The chapters are usually short, and so it's easily digestible for people on the go. Again, eternalleadership.com slash 080. And for those of you on the go, a quick way to get to those show notes is by looking for that link in the summary of this MP3. Are you on our Eternal Leadership email newsletter list? It's a simple and efficient way to hear about upcoming and recent interviews, as well as thoughts from John and myself. Go to eternalleadership.com and there on the front page, if you scroll down just a little, you'll see a form to sign up. Again, the front page, eternalleadership.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Seth Williams talks about emotional awareness. Just recently, my wife asked me, hey, what are you working on uh, right now with your emotional intelligence training? And I said, honestly, it's everything I wish I would have learned when I was 18. Mm. And uh, and that's really at the heart of it. It's the stuff that we need to know or learn. And for most of it, it's the stuff that we probably missed early on. And we've gone years for some of us uh, just tripping over our own two feet, really with the lack of some of the leadership skills that, that are right here in, in this idea of emotional intelligence. This one's good. In fact, it's so good, I still have the notes right in front of me on my desk. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.